0: If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16. So we can continue our study uh, through this portion of God's Word. And if you need a Bible, uh, just raise your hands, and one of the brothers um, ushering this morning will happily supply you one. So if you need a Bible, raise your hands. The sister here, uh, in the left, to my left, Brother Julian. Uh, Anybody else need a Bible? Anybody know what page um, the text is on their Bible? on page 875. Matt, you're always on the spot with that, brother. I appreciate that. Page 875, if you're using the Bibles that we're providing, in Luke chapter 16. When you have it, please say amen. Amen. That was most of y'all, so we'll keep going. Beloved, when we read our Bibles, we're not reading them just to gain Bible facts, all right, so the point of reading our Bibles isn't to get better at Bible trivia. Right, the main aim of reading the Bible is to get to know the Lord. Right, the most sure way to to sort of know who God is and to know what God is like and to build a relationship with God in person is to come to the Bible, for that's where God speaks. And that's where God reveals himself, especially in his son Jesus Christ. Now God's wise, and so he has all kinds of ways of revealing himself even in his word. Sometimes he simply tells us in a statement what he's like. At other times he gives us pictures or images or symbols to tell us what he's like. So for example, in John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus says there that he is the good shepherd. By that image of shepherd, we're meant to know that he is the one who, who cares for his sheep. He tends them, he feeds them, he leads them, he protects them. Or in John chapter six, the Lord says there that he is the bread of life. It's so a picture. What does bread do? Well, it feeds us, doesn't it? It, it nourishes us. And, and so it is that, that those who have spiritual life in Christ are nourished in that relationship with Christ. Or John chapter 15. There Jesus gives us that famous image. He says, I am the true vine. And what? You are the branches. Uh, he's the main part of the plant. He's the, he's the vine. He's the stalk. And it's from that vine that we branches get, get the sap of life. Right? If, if we don't remain connected to the vine, we can't live. But if we remain connected to the vine, he sustains us in life. So in these images we learn something not only about what God is like through Jesus Christ, but but we're also at least implicitly and very often explicitly told what our relationship with him is like. Now one of the lesser known images that's used or, or, or thought of today among Christians, but is used in the Bible, is this image of the master of the house. The master of the house. That's an image that Luke uses a number of times in his gospel. It's an image that teaches us that the Lord owns everything. That he is the owner and the ruler of his household and he owns everything in it. We find an image in Luke chapter 12, beginning verse 35. You remember there, that's where Jesus tells the story about a master of the house who goes away for a while. And will come back at a day and time when his servants don't know, aren't necessarily ready. He uses again in Luke chapter 14 in verses 16 and 17, where he tells the story of an owner of a house, you remember this, who throws a big banquet and invites people to come. And many people won't come, and so he tells his servant to go into the highways and the hedges and compel the poor to come, right? It's the same image in that text, the master of the house. And again, in these stories, Jesus is teaching us something about the nature of God, that he's the owner of the household, and there are no sort of co-owners. He's the only owner. And the rest of us are servants. So you heard our brother read from Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. Did you hear that master of the house imagery there? Let me read for you verses 5 and 6 again. Now Moses... Was, a faith, was faithful in all, all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were sp- to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So not only does this image, the master of the house, teach us about the Lord's ownership, it also teaches us about our stewardship. But that's what we are if we are Christians. We are stewards, servants, not owners. And it's that idea of stewardship that runs through Luke chapter 16. The Lord's ownership is assumed and we relate to him as servants in his household, in his mansion. Luke twelve forty two asks this question. It says this, who then is the faithful and wise manager or steward whom his master will set over his household to give their portion of food at the proper time? Who, who are the faithful and wise stewards? You come to Luke chapter 16 and Jesus begins to give us a yet deeper answer to that question. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. So four points. Number one, God's stewards must be shrewd. Must be shrewd or wise. You see that in Luke 16, verses 1 to 9. Number two, God's stewards must be faithful. Must be faithful. You see that in verses 10 to 13. Number three, God's stewards must not only be shrewd and faithful, but God's stewards must also be obedient. Obedient. Verses 14 to 18. And then from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, God's stewards will be rewarded. Will be rewarded. The, The good steward, who is shrewd and faithful and obedient, will receive the reward of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray as we come to your word that again you would give us understanding. Enlighten the eyes of our minds and our hearts that we might see the truth and embrace it and grant that we should become what we behold in this text. Show us, O Lord, how we should live as Christians. And show us what will be your calling upon our lives if we're not yet Christians. In whatever situation we're in. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take this first point. God's steward must be shrewd. That's the general point of verses 1 to 9 of our text. The Lord tells a story here uh, of a rich man, and that rich man symbolizes God. And in the story, there's also a manager or a steward who represents disciples. And you know that whenever we read a parable like this, a parable is a story that's meant to teach one main point. And here's the one main point of verses 1 to 9 before we read it God's stewards must be shrewd. And we must be shrewd in a certain way. We must be shrewd in using the wealth of this world to get a home in the world to come. God calls us as stewards to use the wealth and possessions of this world to use them in such a way as to get for ourselves a home in the world to come. Look with me in verses 1-9. to He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." And the manager said to himself, "'What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses.' So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You see the flow of this parable, don't you? First there's the screw up in verses 1 to 2. The steward is charged with wasting his master's possessions. He's a bad steward. In in fact, he has failed to steward two things at least. Number one, his master's riches, but number two, he's failed to steward his own reputation. You see there in verse two, the rich man called him and said, what is this I hear about you? This man is known to be a bad steward. He's known to have a bad reputation. He's known to mismanage the master's riches. He has screwed up. But notice number two, the hookup. What does he do in verse three? Verse three tells us he's gotten too soft in his stewardship, hasn't he? He says, I ain't strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I bet you got nice manicured hands. That rascal won't work tasting pies in a pie factory, really. He? See, he's been using his master's wealth really to indulge his own appetites and flesh, it seems. Notice verse 4 what his goal is. His goal isn't, I'm going to work and pay this off. I'm going to work and make this right. He's like, I can't dig and, and you know, I don't want to beg. You're too proud to beg. But notice his goal. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses, right? He's, he's trying to figure out a way to live at other people's expense. He's a freeloader. So he hooks him up, doesn't he? He goes to the people and says, how much do you owe? The man says, 100. He says, write down 50. Write down 50. There's another guy, how much do you owe? He says, 100. I don't know, man, write down 80. And he says, do it quickly, do it quickly. And this is what we're going to do. When I get fired, I'm going to come live with you for a while right? Hook a brother up. (laughs) And there's third, the most puzzling part of all. We see the screw up. We see the hook up. But then in verse eight come the big ups. Y'all know that phrase? Big ups you. He gets his propers. he He gets praise. He gets respect. The rich man looks at the dishonest manager. Notice that's what he's called, the dishonest manager. And he praises him. For being shrewd. Now, isn't that curious? Why this praise? Well, in the second part of verse 8, Jesus kind of stops telling the story and he starts explaining it to us. He starts to give us the punchline. The rich man praised the dishonest manager. Notice there, because for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world is just a phrase that refers to people who are not yet Jesus' disciples. They're not yet Christians. Remember, in verse 1, he's telling the story to his disciples. The sons of light refers to those Christian disciples, those who follow Jesus and obey his teaching and trust him as Lord. What's he saying? He says, when it comes to worldly things, the world is wiser about being the world than Christians are. And incidentally, beloved, this is why as a church we don't ever want to pattern what we do off what the world does. I know the world gets turned up with hip hop concerts. And I listen to Christian hip hop. But we're not going to try to use hip hop as a as a way of outworlding the world in order to win people. And what you win people with is what you win them to, right? And it's striking that so many folks in the Christian world are, are trying in various ways to parrot what the world does and trying to make it just a bit more sanctified. But Jesus tells us here, the, world is, the sons of the world are, are much wiser about how to be worldly than are the sons of light. So this parable isn't told to us to encourage us to mimic the world. That's what's a little bit confusing about his praising the steward. But notice the punchline here. Notice how he explains it to us further. He says there in verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. Now here's what the Christian disciple or the steward of God's possessions needs to do. We need to take unrighteous wealth. And what all that refers to is the, the money and the possessions of this world. We need to take it and use it in such a way that we get friends. The wealth, notice in verse 9, is going to fail. Hold that tight thought. Our money will fail us. It is no adequate God. It is not to be worshipped, and we'll see that later. The wealth is going to fail us, so we need friends that outlive our wealth. In fact, we need friends that outlive our world. Notice that last phrase there. He says, when the money fails, he says, make friends so that you will have eternal dwellings. Here's the question. What friends can we make that would give us eternal homes. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Any man who has God for a friend has a home without end. He's saying, as a disciple, take what I give you, take what I entrust to you as a steward, use it in such a way as to advance my kingdom, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, use it in such a way as to demonstrate that you know God and God is your friend. He is your savior. He is your Lord and your master. And use it in such a way that you guarantee that mansion in God's kingdom, that heavenly, eternal dwelling which Christ has promised to go away and prepare for you. Beloved, what we have in this world is meant to secure us a place in the world to come. We we are not good stewards if as far as we can see is our condo or house or apartment in this life. We are good stewards if we see through and beyond all of that to know that there's a home that's coming for which we are now making down payments, so to speak, as stewards for when the Lord comes, right? So, three questions for application. Do we recognize that all that we have belongs to God? None of us are owners. All of us are stewards. We are merely caretakers of what he has trusted to us. Number two, do we then use what we have in a way that pleases God or cheats God? Do we use what we have in a way that pleases God or cheats God? Number three, are we laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven or are we trusting the world's riches, which will surely fail? God's stewards must be shrewd or wise in how we handle his possessions. We need to handle them in such a way as to get an eternal home. This brings us to our second point. God's stewards must be faithful. See, here's the thing, beloved, you, we can be wise or shrewd and still not be faithful. That was the problem with the dishonest manager in the parable. That rascal was slick, but he couldn't be trusted, right? He was crafty, he was shrewd, but he wasn't true. He wasn't faithful, he wasn't honest. He didn't handle his master's business correctly. So in verses 10 to 13, the Lord continues to emphasize now faithfulness with his disciples. And that word faithful is the key word in those four verses. Look here as we read them together. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money the difference between the faithful steward and the dishonest manager is really seen in what they do with very little. We can predict what people will do with much by looking at how they handle little. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Dishonest in little, dishonest in much. And notice that this isn't simply a matter of ability. Whether or not they know how to steward. It's a matter of character. Did you notice the word the Lord uses for um, the, 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 the unfaithful manager? It doesn't say he was unskilled. It says he was dishonest. The problem was a corruption in his heart. He was a cheater at heart. It's character that separates the good steward from the bad one. The Lord doesn't say in verse 10 again, he was unskilled in little. He says he was dishonest in little. And and when the Lord, when the disciple fails to be a good steward, it's like promising to God to take care of his things, but then not doing it. It's like cheating the Lord. And notice the consequence in verse 11. Verse 11 tells us that not only is there a difference in character, But there's a difference here in terms of um, wealth that could be trusted to us. If we can't handle unrighteous wealth, the the material and the possessions of this world, we don't really have grounds to be confident that we can handle true riches, the riches of God's kingdom, the riches of eternity. How we manage money in this life determines whether we receive the blessings of riches in the life to come. If we can't manage someone else's property, why why would the Lord trust us with our own property and glory? That's the point of verse 12. In heaven, we are meant to move from being stewards to being heirs with Christ and co-heirs with Christ. We're meant to move from being servants and and managers to being owners together together of a kingdom that God has promised to us. And if we don't have the, the discipline and the character in this life to manage the lesser things of worldly possessions, we're not meant to be confident that we can handle the true riches and the greater things of that kingdom to come. And all of this, of course, is stacked on verse 13. Uh, We see the character that's at play. We see the consequence. But notice this challenge. Verse 13, we cannot serve two masters. We cannot worship two gods. We have to make up our minds, don't we? Will we serve the false god of money and possessions, which is idolatry? Or will we serve the one living and true God who owns all things? That's really what determines if we're faithful or dishonest. Who, who are we serving, God or money? Can't be devoted to both, beloved. To be devoted to one is to hate the other. There's no two ways about it. I mean, in very, in very striking terms, in very sort of clear terms, what the Lord Jesus is telling us is stewardship is worship. How we handle what he's entrusted to us is really an act of worship. We declare who our God is every time we make a money decision. Every time we make a a purchase decision. Every time either our money or our Lord is God. God's steward must be faithful. Verse 10 to 13 define faithfulness really as keeping good character keeping consequences in mind, and keeping God first as our only goal That's what it is to be faithful. So, again, let me ask you some application questions. I was studying this text and uh, preparing this sermon and thinking about my own stewardship, and it was like God was playing whack-a-mole with me, man. I was like, oh, that little thing, that little thing, right? So questions. Where would you say you're strongest as a steward? In character, in considering the consequences, or in keeping God as first and alone as Lord? Where are you strongest in your stewardship? Number two, where would you say you need to ask God for more grace and sanctification? Is it in character? So that we're attentive to the little things before they become the big things. So that we're honest in our dealings before God and with man. Or do we need more grace and more growth and holiness when it comes to really setting our mind on things above where Christ is seated and considering what's an offer in terms of how we steward our possessions? Or is it more grace and sanctification in devotion to God? Putting God first, worshiping God only. Something to think about and pray about this afternoon finally, very practically, what decisions about money and possessions uh, do you need to make differently in order to demonstrate your devotion to God? I trust you see that this is all really rubber meets the road stuff. It's not abstract theology. When God speaks to us and defines us as disciples, and defines disciple as steward, he's really bringing our theology all the way down to our practical decisions. How we manage our time, how we manage our money, as we'll see in a moment, how we manage our relationships. All of those things are really speaking out about our devotion to God. So where practically? You feel the spirit sort of meddling in your business calling you to make adjustments and different decisions in order to be a more faithful steward and in order to declare your devotion to God. Wherever he nudges you, go that direction. This brings us to our third point. God's steward must not only be shrewd and faithful, but God's steward, number three, must be obedient. That's what we see in verses 14 to 18. So remember, in verse 1, Jesus began telling this story to his disciples. That's kind of an inside conversation with those who are following the Lord. But now verse 14, notice the audience has kind of changed. Now Pharisees come into view, right? Those who are not following him. And this is what it says in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. When verse 14 says the Pharisees were lovers of money, it means according to verse 13 that they didn't love and serve God. Or well, that Jesus just finished saying, You cannot serve two masters. You cannot love money and love God. You will hate the one and love the other, right? Those two things are oil and water, chalk and cheese. They don't they don't go together, right? And so we come to verse 14 and we're told right here in the sacred word that these Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the leaders of Judaism and the synagogue, they were lovers of money. The Bible tells us, does over in 1 Timothy, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. They were devoted to riches and possessions, not God's will. And when they heard Jesus teaching this, they ridiculed him. They began to heckle him they began to disparage him. They just flat out made fun of the God who came to save him. So in verses 15 to 18, the Lord says four things to these religious people who did not truly love God. The first thing he says is, you can't fool God. That's there in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. See, the Pharisees were good at convincing people that they were the holy ones in Israel. They were good at convincing people that they were obedient to God and that they kept God's law. And and they were so good at it that they eventually had their thumbs on the necks of other people who wanted to worship God. They had this outward display of religiosity, this outward show of piety, this, this outward sort of demeanor of holiness. But Jesus says elsewhere in the gospel, inside they were full of dead men's bones. And inside they were full of greed for money. They love money. And Jesus said, You can fool man, but you can't fool God. He knows your heart. Pause there for a second, beloved. We hear that phrase all the time in our day, don't we? God knows my heart. You know what's really striking about our use? We say that as a way of excusing our hearts of excusing our sins. But when Jesus says it here, it's with an eye toward judgment. Whenever we say God knows our hearts, I think we're meant to tremble. I think we're meant to understand that the Holy One who knows all and sees all and who will not play nice with sin knows our hearts, inspects our hearts. He knows not only what we've done, he knows the motive behind what we've done. He knows the desires that have driven us to it. He knows the corruptions of our hearts and he knows that we are not holy and yet he is. It's the very knowledge of our hearts that creates the crisis with God. Jesus says, beloved, you can fool men, but you can't fool God. He knows what you are, all the way down to the bottom of your soul. And So we're meant to tremble at the very thought, and we're meant to recall texts like Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And Ask this question, who can understand it? And the answer comes back to that question. We don't often understand our own hearts, but God does. How foolish it is to risk heaven and hell with a weak appeal to God knows my heart. No, beloved, it's God's knowledge of our heart and the sins of our heart that condemn us to hell. We need a better remedy than that. First thing he says is you can't fool God. Second thing he says is God doesn't love what you love. God doesn't love what you love. See there in the second part of verse 15, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Isn't that something? We love what we love, don't we? And we think because we love it, everybody else ought to love it. I have Caribbean friends here. I can tell this joke since they're here moved to the Caribbean, being a former athlete about 50 pounds ago, and uh, it's all about basketball and football and maybe baseball if you come from the States, right? Go to the island, and hang out with some of the guys. You know what they love? Cricket. 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 I never forget having lunch with Nicholas Johnson, and he's trying to explain cricket to me. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, but they can hit the ball any direction, you know, and they don't have to run. Why is this, why, They're wearing white. Why is this a sport, right? <laughs> it's a tea break. Come on, what, what in the world? And, 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 and they love cricket in the West Indies, right? They love cricket in most of the world, actually. And as he talked about cricket, and he just talked about his love for it, and he talked about the strategy of it. We were at a Chinese buffet. I was sitting there eating my Chinese food like, man, I don't love nothing you talk about. <laughs> I don't get it. That's a little silly example. We stand before God loving the things we love, craving the things we love, and we make the mistake of thinking, because we love it, God loves it? No, our thoughts are not like His thoughts. His ways are not like our ways. His thoughts and ways are higher than ours. And if we love a thing, like money, to the point where it rivals God, it is an idol, and He abominates it. He hates it. We cannot, not only trust our hearts or say, God knows my heart. We shouldn't trust our loves either. We should test our loves by God's word. To see that we love, in fact, what He loves. And to be sure that what we love isn't unclean in His sight. Notice the third thing. God's commands are what stands. We can't fool God, and God doesn't love what we love necessarily, but God's commands are what stands. So verses 16 and 17, the law and the prophets, that's a phrase that refers to what we call the Old Testament, right? Were until John, that's the beginning of the New Testament. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. We'll come back to that. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You realize that nothing that God has ever said and written in his word has an expiration date. Nothing that he has ever said and required of his people has written on it like we do with uh, misspelled checks or something has written on it void. It's all good. It all continues. It isn't expired. It is fulfilled in Christ, but we have no liberty to look at God's Word and goes, oh, that's the Old Testament. We have no liberty to look at God's Word and says, oh, even though that's the New Testament, that was just the culture of that day. Those are bad ways of thinking about God's Word. God's word will stand. Every dot of it, every punctuation mark will stand until it's all fulfilled and until Christ comes back. And we are obligated to it as a steward is obligated to the owner of the house. It's in his word where God tells us how he wants his house managed. And it falls upon us as a responsibility to obey him and to be faithful to it. That's how God exercises authority over his house and over his people. It's through his word. And it still applies. Which brings us number four, to the fourth thing that Jesus says to these Pharisees here. Verse 18, God must be obeyed. Verse 18 seems like it comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? How did Jesus go from talking about stewardship and possessions they're talking about divorce and adultery. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It seems like it just kind of had an ADHD moment, doesn't it? But think about where your mind has maybe gone in the course of this sermon. We started out talking about stewardship and the most immediate thing to think about is my own personal individual decisions with money, right? And then chances are our, our thoughts kind of drifted to maybe our family or loved ones. We, we start to zoom out a little bit and think about the house and think about the kids or think about the apartment or, or even think about brothers and sisters in the church with whom, whom we're related. We, the mind goes to relationships, doesn't it? Well, So it is with stewardships. Our stewardship includes not only possessions, but it includes also the people God entrusts to us in the form of relationships. And here he goes to that most fundamental of human relationships, marriage. And in fact, when he quotes here this law about divorce and adultery and remarriage, in effect, he's speaking to Pharisees who at that time had come to sort of teach that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. You read the rabbis of, of ancient Israel and, and you read things in their writings that say that if a woman displeases a man for any reason and displeases not defined, then he's able to get a divorce. In the, in the, in the literature of the rabbis, you read things like if a woman burns his food or messes up his dinner, he could get a divorce for that reason. I mean, we, we think that in our day of no-fault divorce, people have a low view of marriage. Beloved, that's been the temptation ever since Adam blamed Eve for the fruit. And Jesus is speaking into that culture and he's speaking into ours and he's saying, listen, what you steward is not just your possessions and not just your own heart of worship to God. What you steward also are your relationships. And God has given to many of us a relationship that's meant to be permanent. Now we're in a fallen world and there are many reasons that marriages end in divorce oftentimes in without the desire of of one of the spouses. But the intent of marriage is that it be a relationship that's lifelong and that we steward it, we manage it, we pour into it and invest into it in such a way that it it not only lasts until Christ comes or he calls us home, but it, it, it will, by God's grace, thrive until Christ comes or calls us home. So he just presses all the way down to the most intimate of relationships and says, "There too, you have a stewardship, and you are called to obey God's word." And let me say this: we, we, We're, I don't think, meant to believe that if we refuse to obey God in the most intimate areas of our lives, that obedience with inanimate, detached things is all that great. In other words, we, we, it's great if we manage our money well for Christ. But that in no way is a justification for mismanaging our relationships before Christ. It's in that relationship of marriage that, that the gospel is shown. The marriage becomes a kind of theater as, as the husband gives himself sacrificially for his wife the way Christ has for the church, and the wife honors her husband the way the church honors Christ her head. It's in that theater that, that the gospel is, is portrayed in the everyday interaction of a husband and a wife. We're not to think lightly of that and to think much of how we worship, uh, how we use our money. That is, in fact, in some ways, to worship our money, All right? And so Christ pushes to the thing most central to our lives when it comes to stewardship, our relationships. Now, he uses marriage and adultery here. He could very well have spoken to singles about chastity or, or he could very well have spoken in other ways about other relationships inside the church. The, the principle is the same. We are to manage the relationships we enter into, as a stewardship and a trust from God, and to manage them in such a way that we demonstrate our obedience to God's Word in those relationships, and to demonstrate that we are taking care of the household of God until He comes. So how might we apply all of this? Let me just ask you, as we've done at the other points, a few questions. Is there any area of of your life or my life? where we trick others into thinking that we're religious, but the truth is something different. Have we soberly considered that God knows our hearts and can't be fooled? Here's the second question. Is there an area of our life where we think God must be pleased with us or pleased with something we're doing simply because it pleases us? Have we mistaken what pleases us with what pleases God? And if it's something that pleases us that's contrary to God's word, are we just kind of soothing our conscience rather than repenting as we should? Well, third question. Have we been thinking in some way that God's commands no longer apply to our lives or that we don't have to obey God in some area? Let us be suspicious of any time we are tempted to think it's okay to disobey God. And fourth and finally, what about our relationships? Are we stewarding, managing, investing in our relationships? in a way that demonstrates obedience to God and faithfulness to God, in a way that honors those relationships as an act of worship. And think, beloved, about all of our relationships. We may be married or we may be single. We may be in between, engaged. Uh, We may be thinking of relationships with parents or siblings. What about our relationships as a church family? Are we managing it, stewarding it, investing in it in a way that demonstrates that God is God and we are his servants? Let me make an application here. I was thinking of making it on Thursday night, but we'll, we'll do it here now. With God's grace, we will be the kind of church family that can have the conversation. You, you've heard me say that, Right? No matter what the conversation is, the conversation could be issues around race and ethnicity. Conversation could be issues around politics and things of that sort. Certainly the conversation about faith and life. But we've been having a conversation over the last couple of months about people who are dear to us, about, about the Duncans. Not with us this morning. Thursday was his last day with us in the church, on the church staff. That's, that's, that's grieved, I trust, a great many of us, if not all of us, Right? Those are relationships for us to steward, beloved. Nothing that's happened there has happened, at least from the vantage point of the leadership, out of any kind of malice or any kind of desire to mistreat. But even in the carrying that out, attempting to manage that relationship with as much faithfulness, with as much love and generosity as is possible. Many of us have had conversations along the way. Sometimes you all with us as elders, sometimes you all with the Duncans, we've invited that, we're happy for that. Beloved, be aware that in those conversations we are very actively managing, stewarding our relationships with each other. We can have those conversations in ways that hurt or help the unity of the church. We can have those conversations in ways that further or stop strife between us. We can entertain gossip or we can help each other with our hearts. This is part of our stewardship. It's part of our loving each other, part of our caring for each other through these difficult times. Jahil said something to me last night. I hope he doesn't mind me repeating it. (laughs) Jahil is a spiritually minded brother. You know this about Jahil. He's a discerning brother and he's quick to think and bleed the scripture. He said something to me last night that struck me and helped me. He says, I I think the Lord has entrusted this to us in this season. That we not be complacent about where we are as a church family. But that we be quickened and alerted to each other to cultivate our relationships with each other and to invest in each other. I'm paraphrasing. He said it better than I'm saying it right now but that just strikes me as right and godly. When I look at this text and look at Jesus talking to us about stewarding our relationships, I'm just pressed for us to remember that we're the congregation, we're the family that can have the conversation. There's there's no grudging the conversation. There's no defensiveness in it at all. But as we have the conversation, we have to be mindful of stewarding ourselves before the Lord, of handling these relationships in a way that strengthen us, we pray, rather than hurt us. Which brings us to our final point. God's stewards must be obedient. God's stewards must be shrewd. God's stewards, what was the other one? Must be faithful. Y'all listen, that's all right. Number four, God's stewards will be rewarded. That's what we see. That's the main point of the story that Jesus tells in verses 19 to 31. Look there with me as we read this part of the text. and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers." See the two persons in this story? There's the rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And I love the fact that the rich man is anonymous and Lazarus is named, He's loved by God. The rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. Lazarus was covered with sores. The rich man feasted sumptuously Lazarus waited for crumbs to fall off his table and Lazarus was kind of licked and eaten upon by dogs. These people couldn't have been more different, could they? Those are the two persons. Notice now the two places that they go to. Both the rich man and the poor man, verse 22, die. But they go to different places. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, which is a way of referring to heaven and a place of honor in heaven. The rich man was buried, and in Hades, hell, was being tormented. The Lord is telling us that his people are very often and more likely the poor and outcasts rather than those who live for riches. If we are getting to know Jesus, we must recognize that, that Jesus believes in a real heaven and a real hell. The person who dies will go to one of these two places. There is no in-between. There is no purgatory. There is no do-over. There's no mulligan. It's appointed for man to live once and to die, and after that comes the judgment. So you see these two people in these two different places, and notice now the two petitions that the rich man makes. Lazarus never speaks in the story. He is named, but he's silent. But the rich man speaks twice to make these two petitions. He's pleading with Abraham. So first in verse 24, he's in hell crying out for mercy. He wants just a a drop of water from the fingertip of Lazarus to cool his tongue. Because he says here, he's in anguish in the flame of hell. Now why he thinks one drop of water is gonna cool his tongue in that torment, I don't know. But it's a picture of desperation, isn't it? Of conscious torment and punishment and judgment in hell. Second, he pleads for his family. (laughs) They're still selfish in hell. You know that, right? They plead for themselves first. Then they plead for family. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, where I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Notice now, even in hell, this rich man thinks Lazarus should servant. Isn't that striking? He's unrepentant of all his selfishness and his lack of love for the poor. Send Lazarus to give me a drop of water. Send Lazarus to go tell my brothers something. Lazarus served this man all of his life and he thinks he's supposed to serve him in hell. Notice something else. He's fully conscious of his suffering. Hell is not a dream. Hell is not a a place of sleep. Hell is a place of, of feeling. It's a place of intense feeling. Feeling, the Bible says here, the anguish of God having removed his love and removed his mercy and removed his grace. You realize that whether or not we are Christians here today, if we are alive, we're enjoying God's common grace. We enjoy the grace of sunshine and the grace of rain. We enjoy the grace of health and the grace of work. We enjoy the grace of family. Hell will be the removal of all God's grace. We cannot imagine it. What horrible, horrible suffering is the removing of God's love and mercy. This man is there feeling it. Notice thirdly, He doesn't want those he loves to join him in Hades. If our loved ones who died apart from Christ and suffer God's judgment could speak to us from there, they would say, repent, don't come here, don't come here, this is no party. This is no place to come relax. This is no place where you're going to be hanging out with all the people you hung out with in this life doing the things that you did that you counted as fun but that God hates. Don't come here. Hear the warning. Hear the gospel. Hear the good news that there's a way of escaping hell and go that way. Don't follow me here. I know mean, many of us are troubled about loved ones who've died apart from Christ and there are many who are tempted to leave the faith because they can't bear the thought of hell. I so was interacting with a young woman online the other day who, who, who wrote and said that she was thinking of leaving the faith. She didn't know she was a Christian anymore. And I wrote and said, what, what, what's going on? What's happening? I've drawn much encouragement from you over the years. And she says, I just don't know if I can, if I could sort of really accept the notion of hell. When I think about that question, I think about my father who died apart from Christ as far as I know. My father, if he never repented of his sin and trusted Christ at a time that I'm unaware of, he's this rich man in Hades. And if he's this rich man in Hades, the message he would get to me is To be to keep believing the gospel. Keep trusting Christ. You have not erred in following him. You've made no mistake in preaching that gospel. Do not come the way that I have come. Do not be troubled by me. Be, Be resting in Christ. Don't come here, son. Don't forsake the gospel. Don't forsake Christ. Don't flee from the only path of salvation, which is faith in the Son of God who was crucified for you, who took the wrath for your sins, who was buried and was raised three days later so that he might rob hell of its victims. Oh, son, be wiser than your father. Be more humble than your father. Be more clear-eyed than your father. And trust Christ. Believe in him. And continue in him. Beloved, it may be that you're here and you're like me. You've got a loved one who's died apart from Christ. And it may be that that troubles your soul. I, I get that. But they would not have you let that keep you from heaven and the love of God. They would have you confess your sins to God. Turn away from them. Put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. The one who died to pay the penalty for your sins and who was raised from the grave three days later so that you might be right with God. They would have you believe in that Jesus and follow him. And so would we as a church family. We would love to walk with you as you walk with Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Lazarus didn't know how quickly Hades was coming. Neither do we. Don't take a day for granted. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Put your faith, your confidence, your hope, rely upon Jesus to save you from your sins. If you call upon his name now, you won't have to call for mercy in Hades. If you call upon his name now like Lazarus, you'll be at his side in heaven. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You see to be a faithful steward is rewarded. There are two problems with living this life and and not turning to Christ. Lazarus had a lifetime of suffering, but now it's his turn to enjoy the comfort, verse 25, of being with God. Beloved, all of our suffering, if we are Christ, all of our suffering will be turned to our comfort. All of our suffering will give way to a greater glory. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans that it is our suffering that is working for us an even greater glory in heaven. Oh beloved, if you have trusted Christ, you have not erred. And if you have suffered for doing so, you will be rewarded. Abraham lived all, or excuse me, Lazarus lived all his days with sores covering his body, eating crumbs from another man's table, but in heaven? He has a glorified body. He sits as a son at the Father's table. And there for all of eternity, he will sup with Christ. He will sup with Christ sumptuously. See, there are two problems once you get to, once you get to Hades. See, there's that great chasm, that great gulf across which no man can go. Once you land in heaven, you are forever in heaven. Once a soul lands in Hades, it is forever in Hades. There's no changing of address. And here's the second problem. Not for those who are in Hades, but for those who are alive. Notice he wants Lazarus to go back from the grave and to warn his five brothers. You see what Jesus says here? Even if a man comes back from the grave, For many people, that will not be enough for them to believe. You see what he said just before that? That they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. They have the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying they should have repented and believed based upon what's in this book. That this book is sufficient witness to give faith. To save a man from the coming judgment. Even the Old Testament gives us enough of the gospel in order for us to be saved. And he says, if he won't hear the word of God from this book, he won't even believe it if a man comes back from the dead. And how many have heard of Jesus' resurrection, of his coming back from the dead, and have hardened their hearts and stopped their ears in unbelief? But beloved, he was seen by many witnesses. He was seen by his up to 500 at one time. His resurrection is attested to in this book, which Jesus commends to us. And then you realize that there's no place in the historical record where anyone has ever offered any credible evidence controverting the resurrection. Oh, Jesus had so many enemies that if it were easy to disprove his resurrection, you know they would have done it and written it down for us. Ever wonder why history is silent when it comes to evidence against the resurrection? It's because it happened, beloved. And it happened before eyewitnesses. And they wrote it for us in God's word. Beloved, if you have not yet believed, believe the more sure word of prophecy. You don't need a sign. You don't need a miracle. You simply need to believe God's word. That it's true. That it's accurate. And that by accepting it, you will be accepted with God. By believing in Christ, you become a son or daughter of God. That's the hope that's held out to us. And so my friend, let me end this way. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, the most important stewardship you have right now is the stewardship of your own soul. How will you manage your soul? Will you continue to go your own way, doing your own thing? and end up with the rich man in Hades? Or will you yield your heart, your life, your soul to Christ as your God and your savior and join Lazarus and Abraham and all the redeemed of God in his eternal glory? Choose life, choose eternal life. Make friends for yourself who will give you an eternal dwelling. Make friends with Christ and our Father. And Christian, we have a joyful stewardship, don't we? The things that we manage, whether small or great, matter for all eternity. What a great thing it is that God has so given our lives meaning that how we pay our bills and what we spend money on can be, can be sort of multiplied in the rewards of heaven. And we will join Abraham and all the patriarchs and we will join Paul and all the apostles and we will join all the saints of all time right at the right hand of Christ our Savior. And there forever we will feast with him in his glory. He is the master of the house. We are but stewards now. But if we are faithful in little with that master in his kingdom, we become co-heirs. And we share together in his glory. That our hearts be filled with that hope. Let's pray to Father, what do we have that we did not first receive from you? In fact, all that we have is yours. All that we are is yours. And Father, we give you praise for your word tells us that you've given us Christ. And it ask this question, having given us Christ, how will you not also along with him give us all things? Oh, you're a generous God entrusting much to us. And we pray that you would make us faithful, oh Lord, faithful with your gospel. We would continue to press into your kingdom and call others to press into it too in repentance and faith faithful with our relationships, make us faithful. Make us faithful in the handling of the possessions that have first come through your hands and down into ours. Let's be reminded that we are not owners but stewards and that there is a kingdom to be had as we manage these things. Well, we want very much to be wise, to be faithful, to be obedient, that we might receive the reward that you have promised. Grant us grace in your spirit to do so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us when we sing before the throne of God above.